From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Investigative reporting reveals scientists at ExxonMobil did groundbreaking research into global warming in the 1970s. Exxon knew that if the science was correct, that at some point governments would take action to rein in emissions of carbon dioxide. And they felt that the best way to shape policy was to do really good science, to be taken seriously, in order to have a seat at the table. But two decades later, Exxon executives questioned the reality of climate change. Their spokesman says these stories skew the facts. What is wrong in those stories is the reporting would seem to indicate that that research stopped at some point. It has never stopped. In fact, our scientists have been a consistent part of the scientific inquiry. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Investigative reporting by Inside Climate News and the Los Angeles Times alleges that Exxon was at the cutting edge of climate change research in the late 70s and early 80s and understood that burning fossil fuels would warm the planet in destructive ways. But the reporting also found Exxon later worked to see doubt on the climate science and funded climate-denying organizations. Neela Banerjee is one of the lead reporters on the six-part Inside Climate News investigation. Neela, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me. So this is quite an investigation. Eight months long, I gather. Take us back to where you started. We started looking into early climate research by academics and the federal government here in the United States. And in the process of looking at what those people were doing, we found out that scientists from Exxon had peer-reviewed research accepted in journals in the early 1980s. So that piqued our interest because, you know, a lot of us know the history of Exxon post-1990 when they worked on clouding understanding of climate change. So from there, we just started looking around. We came across a congressional hearing in 1979. And as a lark, I just decided to search if somebody from Exxon was there. And there was. It was a man named Henry Shaw. And we started Googling Henry Shaw. You know, who is he? That led to a paper that he did about a tanker that had been outfitted with equipment to measure carbon dioxide in the ocean and the atmosphere. And from there, we hopscotched from person to person archives and amassed the body of work that supports our series now. Just briefly summarize your findings for me, please. What we found was that as far back as 1977, everybody from rank and file scientists at Exxon all the way up to the executive suites knew about climate change and the emerging science then, which was called the greenhouse effect, Exxon monitored the science. And most interesting of of all, from we can tell, Exxon was probably the only major company that launched its own in-house, very rigorous climate science research efforts. And how much of a risk do they say the greenhouse effect climate change would be for civilization? They understood very clearly that it was a significant risk to civilization, even as far back as 1977. They said that rising temperatures could destroy agriculture in many places, could shift precipitation patterns. And, you know, the end goal of all of this for Exxon was that they knew that if the science was correct, that at some point 
governments would take action to rein in emissions of carbon dioxide. And they felt at the time that the best way to shape policy was to do really good science, to be taken seriously in order to have a seat at the table. Neela, by the way, what exactly was the tanker research project on carbon that you discovered? Very early, I think this was in 1977, 78, the science community really wanted to know the role that the oceans played in absorbing the carbon dioxide that was being emitted by the use of fossil fuels. So Exxon thought, you know, we have the resources to, to somehow help solve this question. And they outfitted one of their brand new super tankers, the SO Atlantic, it was one of the biggest in the world, with specially made equipment to gather air samples along its route from the Gulf of Mexico to the Persian Gulf, and also samples of ocean water to see how the oceans were absorbing CO2. And they felt that if they did this over a period of time, you could get a regular continuous reading, and it would help scientists understand the role that the oceans played. Now, Inside Climate News and Frontline cooperated to produce a short video about your investigation. And let's listen to a clip of uh, former Exxon scientist Edward Garvey talking about the research you're describing. We were generating what we thought was state-of-the-art information. We were doing science that we didn't think in any way, shape, or form would be questioned. And it, there was no questioning that, that, that the atmospheric carbon dioxide was increasing, that atmospheric carbon dioxide was going to change the climate in some fashion. The question was how fast, how much, and, and what kind of, of uh, impacts would it have you know, overall to the planet. So the, all this information was presented to Exxon's top executives. I mean, you're talking about the very top of the company? We are talking about the very top of the company. You know, the scientist in 1977 who made this presentation, his name was Jim Black, and he said he made it to the management committee of Exxon Corporation, the chairman, the CEO, and the senior vice president. And, you know, you can find them on the annual report. And they're not going to make time in their busy schedules for something that is not of great significance to the company. That was one instance, but there were many others that the documents support, and you can find them in our website. We've digitized a whole bunch of key documents, probably over 20 now. Exxon's scientists and managers from Exxon Research and Engineering, which was the hub of the research, regularly sent detailed updates to senior vice presidents who were members of the management committee about the research. Something like the Tanker Project, which required coordination across many different divisions of Exxon, could only occur if you had someone from the senior VP level sign off on it, former Exxon officials told us. And then, you know, we had this one lovely memo where an Exxon manager from research and engineering described getting into a quite detailed discussion with a senior vice president about the way the carbon cycle works and the role the oceans play. So clearly, this senior VP was well-read enough, was engaged enough on this issue to be having a, you know, a passionate discussion with one of his managers about it. Now, as I understand it, Exxon CEO back in 1996, Lee Raymond, was trained as a chemical engineer. Is that right? That is right. So let's play another clip, this time of Lee Raymond speaking in 1996. Proponents of the global warming theory say that higher levels of greenhouse gases are causing world temperatures to rise and that burning fossil fuels is the reason. But scientific evidence remains inconclusive as to whether human activities affect the global climate. Neela, according to your investigation, that's almost 20 years after Exxon scientists began warning of the possibility of greenhouse gas emissions uh, causing world temperatures to rise and disrupt the climate. What's going on here? What is the CEO 
talking about when Exxon knew about this? Well, you know, I mean, I think that's the question that everybody has to unearth, right? Why did this shift occur? You know, our documents go to 1986, and a lot of the people we spoke to left with mass layoffs at the company in, in the mid-80s for financial reasons, from what we could tell. By 1989, Exxon was one of the founders of this group called the Global Climate Coalition, which sounds very green, but in fact was a group of fossil fuel companies and major manufacturers that were working to stall action on climate change that the UN was considering. So what happened in 86 to 89 is hard to say. I mean, we have some insight into it. There was a management change. There was also a rise of kind of political conservatism that put the wind in the sails of business in this country and, and business's way of thinking about, you know, less regulation and so on. The interesting thing about Lee Raymond is that Mr. Raymond joined the Exxon board in 1984. He became a senior vice president then. In the 1980s, Exxon was looking at this massive gas field in the South China Sea called Natuna. And the gas field was delayed over and over again because it was this weird formation where there's natural gas, but a ton of CO2. And if they just vented the CO2 into the atmosphere while they were reaping the gas, it would have been the single largest point source of carbon dioxide in the world. Every year, the board, including Lee Raymond, told the staffers, you cannot go ahead with this project unless you find a way to deal with CO2. And then 10 years later, he had a very different approach to the threat that CO2 posed to the atmosphere. That project, by the way, is still mothballed. Another news organization, the Los Angeles Times, recently began publishing its own series on the gulf between Exxon's internal and external dialogue on, on climate disruption. To what extent uh, were these investigations, yours and the LA Times, independent? Oh, they were independent. Back in the late winter, when we started to do this research and we started to talk to people who were mainly you know, watchdogs, we heard that Graduate students from Columbia's journalism school were working on it. And later on, we found out that their partner on it was the LA Times. So we weren't coordinating with them at all. We just knew they were working on, on a similar track. And I thought they did a very good article that completed the picture. I mean, our, you know, our research went up to about 1986, but we did not look at the Arctic. And I thought the LA Times and the Columbia J School people did an excellent job at filling in this kind of questionable and contradictory picture where you have Lee Raymond casting doubt on, on the fact that climate change might be happening publicly. But internally, Exxon scientists are looking at climate change and greater melting in the Arctic and how that might open up access to resources, oil and gas resources in the Arctic. I'm sure Exxon has been in touch with you now a number of times in this process and then seen what you have published. What do they claim you've gotten wrong? Well, what Exxon has said is that Inside Climate has written that they stopped doing climate research and they suppressed the results that they had. And we've not said either thing. I think the verb we use was curtailed because we're very aware that Exxon did a, a lot of ambitious research until about... 1986 or so, and that they continued, but but they continued doing research after that. And what the articles do take up, and we haven't gotten a satisfactory answer from Exxon about this, is why did Exxon shift its position from doing rigorous peer-reviewed science in order to have a constructive voice in policymaking to founding the GCC and to having its chief executive cast doubt on climate science. You know, he derided the very models, the very kinds of modeling that his scientists were doing 10 years before. That is really the nub of it, you know, is that shift that occurred. Neela Banerjee is a reporter with Inside Climate News. Neela, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. 
And you'll find links to all their stories and more at our website, LOE.org. Well, it's no surprise that ExxonMobil thinks it has been misrepresented by Inside Climate News and the L.A. Times. So we called up Ken Cohen, Exxon's Vice President of Public and Government Affairs. Ken Cohen, welcome back to Living on Earth. Steve, thanks for having me back. Ken, first, what's your reaction to the recent Inside Climate News and L.A. Times investigations? Well, I don't think it'll surprise you or the listeners to the show that we very much disagree with both of those reports. They stretch far from the truth. And in fact, nothing could be further than the truth than what is being claimed in those two stories. What in particular do you feel that they got wrong? Well, let's begin with, uh, we're a company of scientists and, and engineers, and our scientists and engineers were among the first to grapple with the fact that there could be a connection between carbon dioxide emissions from society's use of fossil fuels and climate fluctuations. And so we did have scientists beginning in the late 1970s and continuing to this day engaged in studying the impact of CO2 emissions, greenhouse gas emissions on climate. What is wrong in those stories is the reporting would seem to indicate that that research stopped at some point. It has never stopped. In fact, our scientists have participated in every UN climate assessment beginning in 1988. We've been a part, our scientists that is, have been a part of the assessment process. Our scientists have contributed over 50 papers that were reviewed by the collective body of scientists studying this very complex subject. In addition, we've been part of creating some of the most sophisticated modeling programs at research institutions in the country. Our scientists have been a consistent part of the scientific inquiry. Well, taking a look at the Inside Climate News articles, I don't see a claim that Exxon stopped climate research altogether. What I do see them claiming is that Exxon continued to conduct research while publicly casting doubt on climate science. So how do you explain this discrepancy between the private and public discussions of climate change? Again, I, I take issue with that part of the reporting. Our participation in the discussions on public policy response to how does society respond to this risk of climate change pretty much mirrors the IPCC findings during the relevant period. That is, our positions evolved over the period 1988 to the present time as the science evolved. Now, it is true, Steve, that during that period, we were part of a large business group that opposed the U.S. adoption of the Kyoto Protocol back in the late 90s. And the reason was that the Kyoto Treaty would have exempted over two-thirds of the world's emitters. And we felt that that was inappropriate policy given the nature of 
the source of greenhouse gas emissions and what would have to be done to have an effective response. Later over that time, when the uh, Waxman cap-and-trade bill was being debated in what was then the democratically controlled House of Representatives, we took issue, as did many in the business community, because it would have exempted coal. So we did two things simultaneously. We supported scientific inquiry, and we also participated in policy discussions. How do you explain the piece of tape that the Inside Climate News folks along with Frontline unearthed that has Exxon's CEO in 1996, that would be Lee Raymond, saying that, let me quote directly, proponents of the global warming theory say that higher levels of greenhouse gases are causing world temperatures to rise and that burning fossil fuels is the reason. Scientific evidence remains inconclusive as to whether human activities affect the global climate. And yet your inside researchers had this math saying, the more fossil fuels we burn, the more we will affect the climate. How do you reconcile your CEO statement with your own internal research findings? Well, I'm not going to really comment on a speech given 18, 19 years ago, although when one reads the whole speech, it is consistent with the overall scientific consensus at the time. Remember, the scientific view and understanding of this issue has evolved as one would expect it to do. The understanding would evolve over time. The scientists that were quoted in the story working for the Exxon research facility were correctly identifying the potential impact that increased greenhouse gas emissions could have over time if unabated applying the uh, the principles of the greenhouse effect. Both are consistent. Now, where we focus our work is in the area of both understanding the science and then recognizing that the climate risks are real and that actions are warranted, but we need to recognize that the solutions aren't easy. They're going to take time, huge investments, and thoughtful policies. I, I don't know if you saw, Steve, a recent but, interview. But, that, but, but, but Mr. Cohen, your CEO in 1996 is saying that humans don't have a role here, that science doesn't show that humans have a role there, but clearly your science team no, says well, that it again, does. No, well, I'm not going to, Steve, I'm not, Mr. Raymond's speech 18 years ago, again, one, when you read the entire speech, it is consistent with the debate that was going on at the time. And it's also consistent with the work that we had going on at the time, which is this is a very complicated subject and we need to understand it better. Ken Cohen is Vice President of Public and Government Affairs for ExxonMobil. Ken, thanks for taking the time today with us. Steve, thank you very much. Meantime, some members of Congress, including Democratic presidential candidate and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, are questioning whether the published stories show ExxonMobil broke any laws. When the oil giant spoke out against the science, it had itself helped to pioneer. Senator Sanders called on the Justice Department to launch a criminal investigation. He wrote, These reports, if true, raise serious allegations of a misinformation campaign that may have caused public harm similar to the tobacco industry's actions, conduct that led to racketeering convictions. Sanders added, it appears that Exxon knew its product was causing harm to the public and spent millions of dollars to obfuscate the facts in the public discourse. Two Democrats on the House side, Congressmen Mark DeSaune and Ted Lieu, 
have also called on the Justice Department to investigate Exxon's actions. Congressman DeSone says the revelations in the articles really took him by surprise. I've been in politics a long time. I've got four refineries in the county that I represent, so I've dealt with the petroleum industry. I was on the California Air Resources Board for 10 years, so I'm not unfamiliar with them, but I was shocked. The years lost to climate denial cannot be recovered, but Congressman DeSaune says he hopes that calling Exxon to account will help America and its corporations set a better future. When you follow this process with Exxon in the transition from being a responsible corporate citizen to being one who only cared about near-term profits. And I would say that that's happened to far too many American corporations. Maybe this is an opportunity we can change our corporate culture where people return in the boardrooms to being more responsible. California Congressman Mark DeSaune. Our story would not be complete without including an unusual move by writer Bill McKibben. The climate activist took action to get himself arrested at an ExxonMobil gas station And he joins us now to explain. Welcome back to the show, Bill. Steve, it's always a pleasure to join you. So what motivated you to get arrested, and and how did you make this decision? Well, it's actually a good question. I'm not sure anyone's ever gone out and got arrested before in order to persuade people to read somebody else's newspaper article. But these stories are so important, they rewrite what we understand about the most important crisis humans have ever faced. And I had the fear that they might begin to disappear into the inordinate clutter of our media life, that people wouldn't pay them the attention that they manifestly deserve. And so I thought this might be one small gesture. It seems at least in some way to have worked by the end of the day, according to some friends at Facebook, it was trending at the top on Facebook until it was displaced by a corgi barking at a miniature pumpkin. (laughs) Maybe next time you should wear a corgi suit. I think so. So you wrote a blog post at one point in which you said, in the 28 years I've been following the story of global warming, this is the single most outrageous set of new revelations that journalists have uncovered. Why did this story strike such a chord with you, and why is it so important for people to read these stories? Well, partly, of course, it struck a chord with me, Steve, because like you, I've been covering this story from the very start. I wrote the first book about climate change, and so I've watched with a great deal of anguish as we've failed to take action for 30 years. And as I read these stories, what became clear was two things. One, what the story showed. Exxon knew absolutely everything there was to know about climate change. Beginning in the late 1970s, by the mid-1980s, they had computer models that matched exactly what we've seen since. By the early 1990s, they were using that information to help them bid on new parcels for oil drilling in the melting Arctic and so on. That's one thing. The other was that meant Exxon could have been maybe the one force on Earth that could have short-circuited this 30 years of faux debate if in the late 1980s when Jim Hansen at NASA first stood up in Congress and said, we're warming the planet and it's going to be a disaster. If at that moment, Exxon executives had stood up and said, you know what, our internal science shows the guy is right, we're in a real mess. They would have been the one institution with credibility unique enough to bring everybody on board. Instead, of course, they lied. Their CEO stood up in front of the leadership of the Chinese government and told them that the globe was cooling, 
told them that the models were nonsense, told them to go full speed ahead with fossil fuel development. They um, helped work with veterans of the tobacco industry to formulate the same strategy of sowing scientific doubt. They did everything they could to make sure that no one knew. And that's a remarkable thing to have done. What part of this story were you most shocked by? Well, I think the part that interested me most was the depth of Exxon's research into this in the early days, back in the 70s and early 80s. And I think that's because we'd kind of forgotten what the world was like then. Big companies took it almost as their duty to do a lot of basic research. I mean, it was at Bell Labs that we discovered the Big Bang, more or less, right? Because they were doing basic research on propagation of waves and things. It stands to reason that Exxon, biggest company on Earth, would be know more about the carbon molecule than anybody else. And there they were, hard at work, outfitting supertankers with CO2 monitors so they could figure out how much was accumulating. That part shocked me maybe in a good way. The other part that shocked me was just the blatancy of their lying about all of this. And I think that it's important for people not to say, oh, we knew this all along, you know, why would anyone be shocked? I think it's important to let ourselves be shocked. To be knowing and cynical like that is to play right into their hands. What they did was wrong on a scale that we may not even have a scale for. It may be as off the charts as the temperatures now are going off the charts. So how do you think these allegations are going to impact the work that you and others in the climate movement are doing? I don't really know. I mean, this is a very fluid moment. We're getting ready to go to Paris for this climate conference. And of course, the oil industry will be trying to kind of greenwash itself and exert its usual influence there. I think it's going to be a big wake-up call to people. Among other things, as you know, even before these revelations, the last three years have seen an astonishing growth of this fossil fuel divestment movement around the world, to the point where endowments worth $2.6 trillion are now divested from beginning to divest from fossil fuel, California state government being among the latest. I think that this will only increase that, along with the fact that these stocks are tanking and losing people money. The fact that you're in bed with people committing misdeeds on this kind of scale should give all but the very most callous investors some kind of pause. So we'll see what happens. I think for the moment, the most important thing is simply for people to read and internalize and understand this. If we're going to go through the pain that we're going to go through in the next generation or two. And clearly that pain, even if we act now to stop climate change, that pain is going to be severe. You know, look at the last two weeks. We've had thousand-year rainfall events in South Carolina and California. As we speak today, they're still trying to dig the mud out of the highways of California so cars can drive on them again. That kind of stuff happens everywhere in the world now, and it's going to keep happening. If we're going to go through that kind of pain, at the very least, we deserve to understand the source of it and where it came from. Bill McKibben is a writer, activist, and co-founder of the environmental organization 350.org. Bill, thank you so much. Take care, guys.
After all that headline news, let's go digging beyond the headlines. As usual, we turn to Peter Dykstra with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. He's on the line now from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. Let's start things off with a little vent. Okay, but hey, keep it clean and don't let your head explode, all right? That's the deal. You've talked a lot about Exxon here today, but here's a little more petroleum-related news. There's a report out from the think tank wing of one of the world's financial giants, specifically the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute. With a pedigree like that, you've got to assume they know a thing or two about huge financial mistakes. Oh, still mad at that little collapse back in 2008, are you? Yeah, but that's not my vent. The J.P. Morgan Chase Institute studied how consumers are responding to lower gasoline prices, down about $1.50 from just over 18 months ago. Are we socking away our petro savings? Are we paying off our credit cards or student loans? Are we sending it to public radio? No! Americans are taking the money we're saving on gasoline, and we're spending it on gasoline. Buying more of it for longer trips, filling larger tanks on bigger vehicles, and yes, buying premium gas where regular once did the job. We're getting a little extra disposable income, and we're disposing it into the tank and out the tailpipe. Yeah, but isn't that human nature? Well, sure it is, and it has many names in psychological circles, behavioral economics, mental accounting, and more. But it's a reminder that energy consumption and all the baggage it carries is still a pretty low priority for us. Okay, vent over. What's next? Let's go from venting to a little bit of piling on. The Volkswagen scandal about rigging diesel car engines so they fool emissions testing devices has a lot of people thinking about diesel cars in general. Brad Plumer is a very sharp reporter for Vox.com, and he's taken a look not at the VW fiasco, but the overall state of cars that run on diesel, and it's not good. For a couple of decades now, European governments have been hot for diesel, as it burns more efficiently than gasoline and would therefore produce less carbon dioxide. Thanks to tax breaks and other encouragement, diesel cars are now about one-third of all cars in the EU. And I'm guessing there's a downside here. Oh, you bet. A study published two years ago says that other pollutants from diesel engines like soot and nitrogen oxides offset any gains to be had by more efficient engines. Moreover, when EU nations wrote rules that paved the way for so-called green diesel, they also tilted the playing field against alternative fuel vehicles, slowing their development. And finally, emissions tests for diesel cars in Europe were found to be seriously flawed. Even before VW got caught, the game was rigged. Bottom line, diesel's promises to help with both climate change and air pollution have largely gone unfulfilled. Hmm, so far you're two for two on less than cheerful observations this week. Do you have anything, let's say, more uplifting from the annals of environmental history? Well, no. In fact, 25 years ago this week, the British Royal Geographic Society picked its winner for worst environmental disaster in history. The near eradication of the world's fourth largest freshwater lake took the prize. The Aral Sea, straddling the former Soviet republics of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, was once 26,000 square miles, about the size of the state of West Virginia. A mega project conceived by Joseph Stalin's regime and carried out in the 1960s diverted both of the major rivers that feed the Aral Sea in order to make an immense region of irrigated cotton farms. By the 1990s, the Aral Sea had gone from West Virginia size to Delaware size, about one-tenth its former size. And despite rescue efforts, there's little hope it can ever recover. Yeah, and the before and after pictures are dramatic. 
dramatic and bizarre, ships rusting in what is now the blowing dust of a desert, and that dust contains pesticides and other contaminants from the industrial farming operations that suck the lake dry. Let's hope the example of the Aral Sea is a lesson learned for all time. And you can see the RLC, or what's left of it, on our website, LOE.org, along with information on all these stories. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News, that's EHN.org and TheDailyClimate.org. Thanks, Peter. Thanks a lot, Steve. We'll talk to you soon. Coming up, oh, Canada, it's all change in the Parliament up north. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. The presidential race is heating up across America, but north of the border, a new face from a fabled political dynasty just romped into power with a landslide win that signals considerable change. Gone is the oil-friendly Stephen Harper, and taking over as prime minister is the charismatic, handsome Justin Trudeau, son of popular leader Pierre Trudeau, of the left-leaning Liberal Party. Conservative Party leader Harper comes from Alberta, the hub of tar sands extraction. Mr. Harper pushed hard for more pipelines, including the Keystone XL, to bring Canadian oil to Texas. He also pulled out of the Kyoto Protocol Climate Treaty, questioned the science of climate change, and muzzled environmental scientists. Justin Trudeau has a very different set of priorities, but still, much of the nation's earnings do come from the extractive industries. So we called up Mike D'Souza, investigative resources reporter for Reuters, to find out how Canada's energy and environment policies might change. Welcome to the program, Mike. Hi, Steve. So what has Justin Trudeau, the incoming prime minister, put on the record in terms of how he'll deal with climate change? So in the most recent campaign, the liberal platform has been general. There isn't a comprehensive plan There are no concrete targets that they're aspiring to achieve apart from a global temperature target. They say that whatever policies they introduce are designed to ensure that global warming does not exceed two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So they've talked about carbon pricing across the economy, but they have said that it's up to the provinces to come up with their own individual plans of how they would achieve targets based on their unique industries in each province. There have been some promises for new spending on green energy, green infrastructure that are within the Liberal platform, but a lot of it is more about the language and the tone about wanting to do better. The details, well, that remains to be seen. So today, what are Canada's greenhouse gas emissions and which direction are they headed in, up or down? I would say they've plateaued. I think Canada has generally been in the top 10 to 15 emitters in the world in terms of the absolute emissions. In terms of the emissions per person, I think Canada is second or third in the world. So there's a lot of parts of the Canadian economy that are becoming more efficient. The Ontario government 
shut down the coal-fired power plants. And that had a significant impact on reducing Canada's carbon footprint. The British Columbia government introduced a carbon tax. The Quebec government introduced some form of the very modest carbon tax and then, you know, announced a partnership with California on a cap-and-trade program that they're trying to expand to other partners, including Ontario. I would say that Canada's GHGs, they could be heading in the right direction, probably not fast enough. But if it is, it's because of action by provincial governments right now. Now the Alberta government is the problem. That's the area where emissions are increasing. There's a government there that has increased the carbon pricing that was already in place. And it looks to introduce a more comprehensive plan, I would say, within the next year. So possibly within the next year, we're going to see some movement from Alberta that could also have a significant impact on Canada's carbon footprint going forward. So what do you expect incoming Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to do about the tar sands? So ultimately, whatever he does here, it'll have to be led, I think, from the Alberta government. There is a new left-leaning government, a new Democratic Party government in Alberta that has promised to address it more so than any previous governments have. And so within Mr. Trudeau's platform, he is going to have to sit down with the Premier of Alberta if the Alberta government decides not to do anything, maybe it's at that point that we might see a test of what Mr. Trudeau and his future government is willing to do. But right now, there's still quite a bit of uncertainty about how and if he can tackle this sector. How do you think incoming Prime Minister Trudeau will address the specific question of Keystone, uh, the transboundary pipeline? The Liberal Party has supported the Keystone project. They've always viewed it as a proxy in a battle about climate change. And so they support this project based on the economic benefits of it. And it's an assumption that there would be some efforts or, or action to crack down on the, the greenhouse gas emissions from the oil sands. They feel it would or could be cleaner. The Liberal Party has concerns about the environmental regulation process in Canada and, and changes to environmental laws that were scrapped or rewritten in the past couple of years by the Harper government. So one of the things that they promised to look at or review is fixing that environmental review process. The Harper administration drew a lot of criticism for muzzling scientists who are talking about climate disruption. What do you think will be the attitude of the new Trudeau administration to having Canadian government scientists talk about findings that they're making? They've said that they'll change things. There's been longstanding criticism from the Liberal Party of what is perceived to be these muzzling policies. And maybe about three weeks before the election date, Justin Trudeau had released an open letter to the public service with a number of points expressing his views that he believed a government should show more respect for public servants, that he believed the previous government wasn't doing that. And he specifically mentioned the muzzling issue and said that, you know, if a Liberal government were elected, that it would put a stop to these practices. It would allow scientists to speak freely on their work. But in general, I think the type of thing that we've seen in the past uh, eight or nine years in Canada, they have made a firm commitment to put a stop to that. So the world is getting together in a climate summit in Paris, end of November, beginning of December. What will the approach of the Trudeau government be to an international agreement on climate disruption? So what he said so far, uh, Steve, is that there would be a change in tone. 
that Canada takes this issue seriously. And, and I think one of the first things is he's going to be there himself. Mr. Harper, during his term in office as, as prime minister, he didn't go to any of the climate change conferences except for the, the Copenhagen one in 2009. So Mr. Trudeau has said that he will speak, and that's it's a first step in signaling how important he views this issue. He has invited the premiers of each of uh, the provinces and territories in Canada to go with him. But Mr. Trudeau has made a, a very open and, and clear and important invitation for them to all come. The problem is, though, he is being sworn in as prime minister. If I remember correctly, the date is going to be November 4th. And the Paris summit is going to be starting a few weeks later. It doesn't give him much time to update Canada's policy and uh, and make it more comprehensive. So I believe the previous government did file a submission and does have a 2030 target. My understanding is that other countries like the, the U.S., countries in Europe have told Canada they believe its submission isn't ambitious enough. So there is pressure from the other countries for Canada to do more. This is the problem that there's likely going to be more of friendly language about wanting to do something without much details. He's agreed to meet with all of the premiers again after the summit to hammer out what each of them is willing to do and what each of them can do and what each of them will do to tackle Canada's carbon footprint. Mike D'Souza is an investigative resources correspondent for Reuters. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks, Steve. Canada isn't our only neighbor with an election. Down in the Caribbean, Haiti chose October 25th to begin its round of polling. There are multiple parties contending, and even preliminary results won't be announced until November 3rd. Part of the delay is logistical. Haiti is largely rural and lacks much in the way of infrastructure to serve the many people who live on tiny farms scattered about the countryside. And as reporter Allison Greiner found as she traveled the hilly central section of Haiti, agricultural life doesn't rely on the cash economy. As you ride through Haiti's central plateau, you pass farm after farm, fenced in by neck-high cacti. Goats sidle by, roosters crow, and occasionally you'll see a fat, floppy-eared pig among them. But three decades ago, you might not have seen any pigs at all. That's because in the late 1970s, a contagious hemorrhagic disease called African swine fever had reached Haiti's shores. It had traveled from Europe to the Caribbean region, and its arrival in Haiti meant bad news for the nation's pig farmers. In the Haitian peasantry, we consider the Creole pig as the peasant's bank. That's Jean-Baptiste Chavan, a candidate for the 2015 Haitian presidential election, held on October 25th. He rose to fame as a leader in the National Congress of Papai Peasant Movement and as a former recipient of the Goldman Environmental Prize. Siobhan, who was born to a peasant family, says Creole pigs were an important source of wealth to those with little else of value. Over 40% of Haiti's population lives in the countryside, where there are extremely 
high rates of poverty. Why did we call the pigs banks? Because the peasant could keep his pig not far from the kitchen, and the pig would eat all sorts of trash. If I know that next year I'm going to send my son to high school, I will increase what I feed the pig so that I can sell it. It was a permanent source of security for the family. But the Creole pig meant more than just money to the Haitian people. It had symbolic value, too. Gerald Murray, a retired anthropology professor from the University of Florida, did fieldwork in Haiti before the outbreak. He saw the Creole pig play an important role in Haitian religion. There's a folk religion, the Haitians call Sevilois, serving the spirits. Uh, outsiders call it voodoo. Part of voodoo ritual entails what religions around the world have done, which is animal sacrifice. Different spirits have different tastes. The pig was the preferred meat of the more violent of the spirits. But in the late 1970s and early 80s, these pigs, which represented such a significant chunk of Haitian history, were falling victim to swine fever. Every peasant family was touched. Everyone. Because every Haitian family had a pig. Something had to be done. So a coalition led by USAID the United States Agency for International Development, came up with a controversial solution. They decided to exterminate the Creole pig to prevent the incurable disease from spreading. But that decision left many Haitians with unresolved questions, Murray says. Some grew suspicious of USAID's motives. I mean, during the epidemic, there were pigs, dead pigs floating in the rivers. You know, I mean, it's like a lot of pigs were dying. But the meat was harmless to humans, so why do you kill all the pigs? Why not protect the healthy pigs? Why declare all pigs dangerous? And the answer is they were protecting pigs in the United States. That's the common answer given. At the time, Siobhan was a rising star in Haiti's peasant movement. He and his colleagues tried to intervene and convince groups like USAID to stop the slaughter. We tried to resist, but no. We had to completely eliminate the Creole pig. Certain peasants hid some pigs anyway, but very few. The government tried to compensate farmers for their lost Creole pigs, but the process was fraught with corruption and scams, according to Murray. The only externally funded project I've seen that worked perfectly was the slaughter of the pigs. Very efficiently done. The repopulation, not as efficiently done. You know, not as efficiently done. American pigs were brought in to replace the Creole pig, but they were ill-suited to the harsh conditions that the Creole pig thrived in. Murray says that farmers struggled to accommodate the new livestock, which had very particular and very expensive needs. Poor farmers could get a free pig, but they had to agree to take care of it in a certain way. Uh, they had to agree to build a particular type of pen for it and not give it garbage. It had to be given good food. The problem was the food cost about $100 a year. I mean, that's, you know, people made about $150, you know, so, you know, the pig would be eating better than the people. The problems didn't end with the added expense. Siobhan observed that the new pigs were causing trouble for rural families. Those pigs ate the chickens. They attacked children. And when we saw that, we said, this is impossible. Haitian families cannot raise these pigs. And so we started to really protest. Siobhan started to notice peasants turning to other sources of income. He says the extermination of the Creole pig forced many peasants to harvest wood to make charcoal. That only exacerbated the problem of deforestation in Haiti, and it's a big problem too. Over 98% of Haiti's land has been sheared of its forests. 
erosion and droughts have increased as a result. It's catastrophic for the environment. Just like when a peasant wants to send his kids to school, before he could sell a pig. Now that he has no more pigs, he cuts trees. There is a direct relationship between the impoverishment of peasant families and the cutting of trees to produce charcoal. To reverse the trend, Siobhan and his colleagues decided to reintroduce the Creole pig, or at least a hybrid that could fill its place. We want the return of the Creole pig, so we let a fight. And over the years, the Minister of Agriculture finally started a program for the repopulation of the pigs. They brought sows from Guadeloupe and Martinique. But it was a battle. But just as the new pig herd was starting to grow, once again, disease intervened. This time, the culprit was Tetchin, a virus that can kill a pig within days. Six years ago, it started to spread, and decades of work were lost. That's why we converted our pig repopulation program to goat farming. It's easier to raise pigs. It's less dangerous for the environment, etc. But this is a new situation. Still, the fight is not yet over for the Creole pig. Vaccines for Tetchin are already being tested in Haiti, and Siobhan hopes partnerships with international NGOs will help fight this latest disease. Part of Siobhan's mission is to rebuild the peasant economy. But to reach that goal, bringing back the Creole pig is a necessity, he says. We must. <laughs> we must. And like I said, pig farming is indispensable for re-establishing the peasant economy. We must act rapidly against Tessian to save the race. But I hope that we won't lose them all. That we will have time to fix this problem. Already, the race to save Haiti's pigs is well underway. This past spring, an official from the Ministry of Agriculture announced that 500,000 doses of the Tetchin vaccine had been produced. The official says they are currently available for farmers to use. For Living on Earth, I'm Allison Greiner. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation and brought to you from the campus of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emma Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, and Jennifer Marquis. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jake Rigo and Noel Flatt. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Candida Fund and Trinity University Press, publisher of Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril. 80 visionaries who agree with Pope Francis, climate change is a moral issue for each of us. TUPress.org. And Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. 
PRI Public Radio International.